from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 40. Again, that's Hebrews 11, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him up from the dead, from which he figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And by faith, Isaac invoked the future blessing on Jacob and Esau by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses... When he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured in seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, and David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of God.
Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. We're in Hebrews. We're getting close to completing this book. My name's Brad. If you don't know me, I'm uh, glad that you're here today. You know that we love to teach through books of the Bible. Um, We find Jesus there, and he's the one that uh, we've come here to meet. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a famous chapter on faith. Many have called it the Hall of Faith. As we look at it, um, Jared last week did a great job explaining what faith does and what it means for us. And he pointed out that faith enables us to fix our eyes on a better country. Now today in our scripture, we continue with that same theme of faith. And in this chapter, the writer proceeds to name a rather extensive and impressive list of characters from the Old Testament, along with also some followers of Jesus who are known for what would seem to be their amazing faith. We're going to take a look at the characteristics of their faith. It can seem at first glance as if this is a list of biblical superheroes. As if Marvel were going to make New Avengers movies, they could find some characters here. But is that really the case? Uh, Today, I would like over this long text of Scripture, instead of walking through these stories one by one, which literally could be its own sermon series because it's a history of the Old Testament, instead of walking through them one by one, I want to just examine a couple of them in order for us to see a context for what I'm calling biblical faith. And then to try to use these stories to point out the ditches on either side of the road when it comes to biblical faith. Because faith in the church is one of those areas where we can really miss the boat. And what I mean by that is we can really miss the boat if we aren't careful because we tend often to either idolize faith in an unhealthy way or we'll abandon it. So much so that it becomes essentially inactive in our lives. And so two ditches along the path of faith. I just want to kind of set this context for you and then we're going to look at some of the characteristics of faith within the text. So the one side of the the path of biblical faith, one ditch would be an idolized faith. An idolized faith. So the health and wealth gospel presents an idolized faith. And that's the primary gospel that's taught in many churches in America today. It's popular because it's satisfying. It's satisfying to hear that the gospel fixes your life right now. And it gives you your best life now. Until it doesn't. Right? And idolized faith overpromises and underdelivers whenever we hit the wall of tragedy, whether that's loss or unrealized expectations, or hardship. And then we tend to move to the other ditch, which I would like to call abandoned faith. Now, listen to me carefully. I don't mean we reject God or disbelieve in his existence. Instead, we move to a place in which we face disappointment. And in order to protect ourselves from hurt, faith becomes inactive or passive. 
We're just waiting on God to make things happen. With an with a attitude of whatever will be, will be. Essentially, we become emotionally detached from our faith in a way that says, I'm not angry with God, but I'm also not very passionate about God. I'm just here passively waiting on Jesus to return. So someone who has moved toward the ditch of abandoned faith or detached faith, they may likely have, they may attend regularly, They may give financially. They may may even have good moral accountability. But they don't, but their, their response is, don't expect me to care. Because I've done that. And it didn't end well. See, biblical faith is a faith that allows us, this is the big idea for today. Biblical faith allows us to have realistic expectations regarding the Christian life so that we're able to remain resilient. See, biblical faith enables us to bend without breaking, to suffer without coming undone, to be challenged, even wounded, without becoming lame. When I say biblical faith allows us to have realistic expectations, I don't know if you've ever had your expectations dashed before. I can remember being on the playground in kindergarten and word had gotten out that one of the moms in our class had made popsicles for our class. Surely I wasn't the one who started this, but somehow the word made its way around our class and on the playground as kindergartners often do, we began to brag at the end of recess, we're going to have popsicles today. And oh, how my hopes were dashed. Because as the other teachers heard us bragging, I guess one of them decided to go to Walmart. And you know, you know the pop ice that you can buy in the little plastic sleeve? You can get like 500 for $2.50. You know what I'm talking about? That's what they got. Those things are wonderful. You know what I'm talking about. Like in kindergarten, you eat it until you get a brain freeze and then you put it under your arm and you melt it and then you like pour the juice out. It's just wonderful. It's like a taste of what heaven's gonna be like as a kid. And then we were waiting on our popsicles and we got them. The mom had cut bananas in half, stuck a popsicle stick in them and frozen them. And my expectations were dashed. Now I think I've healed, or at least I'm on the way of healing from my popsicle incident. But popsicles don't carry the same weight as our faith. That's why it's so important that we have realistic expectations about biblical faith so that we remain resilient, so that we can learn how to not just finish well, but how to suffer well in order that we might finish well And that we could even along the path of suffering, which we will face, Jesus has promised us that, that we would enjoy all that God has planned for us. So let's look at this text, beginning in verse 17. Ben's already read it for us and done a great job at that. In verse 17, the writer says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received 
the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, we have to go back to verse 1 in chapter 11 to be reminded of the definition of faith. Otherwise, we'll just get caught in this list of characters. And so, verse 1 tells us, if you remember from last week, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith, by its very essence, is born out of the soil of insecurity, of hopelessness. Faith is born out of the soil, ultimately, the soil of discontentment. Without discontentment, there will not be faith. And that sounds crazy because as Christians, we're supposed to be content in Jesus And while that's true, the more content we become in Jesus, the less content we will become with the world. Do you see how that works? And it's only when we reach a point of real discontentment with the world that we finally are ready to move toward real health and real healing in our lives, to let faith do its work. Give you a quick example of that. Andrew told me about uh, a conversation he had. Our missional community serves with a ministry called Room in the Inn here in Memphis. And Room in the Inn takes in um, street people and they will give them a place to sleep at night and a warm meal. So we went in on Friday night and prepared a warm meal and ate um, there with the people who were staying at the church building that night. And we encouraged them that we would love to pray for them. And so over our meal, if there were things that they needed to share, we would love to pray for them. And Andrew asked the man that he was having a conversation with across from the table if he could pray for him. And the man's response was, I don't really know how that works. I don't know how God hears everyone's prayers, sorts them out, and I don't don't really understand how that works. But he essentially went on to say, but I'm open to it because what I'm doing is not working and something's got to change. He even went on to say, so why not? Why not? Why not? brings us to the place of faith. Why not? I've got nothing to lose. That's what he told Andrew. That is a place in which we are prepared and ready to receive all that God desires to do in and through us. And so as we look at this text, what's so amazing about Abraham's faith, he and his wife Sarah, they were discontent. In fact, their discontentment was so great that she sent her female Egyptian servant into Abram in order to have a child. And you can imagine how that turned out. Biblical soap opera, real mess for generations. And God eventually blesses them with a child, not by her servant, not by her Egyptian servant, but through Sarai's old, worn-out body. She's almost 100 years old. And the scriptures say that Abraham, you say, well, it's no, no big deal. We know, we know old men who have children. Well, the scripture says that Abraham was, his body was as good as dead. And so we see that Abraham and Sarah, in the midst of their discontentment, trusted God. And what's so amazing is not only did they trust God and then become detached and hold on to, to Isaac, but no, they continued to trust in God. So much so that they were willing to give Isaac again over to the Lord, to suffer discontentment once again because their faith in 
God was so great that they believed that resurrection would take place, that God would bring contentment to their lives once again. Pick back up in verse 20. By faith, now Isaac, their son, invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What's so amazing about that is that if you look at Joseph's story, he speaks a word of prophecy by faith that's nearly 400 years before the exodus would even take place. He says, don't leave me here. God has promised us a better land. And I'm willing to believe that even if it's 400 years from now. Look in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. It sounds, sounds kind of funny when you first read that. What would they have done if he was ugly? But you don't have to worry about that because if you've ever had a child, I've never met a parent who thought their first child was anything but beautiful even when they look like aliens when they're born. By faith, Moses, in verse 24, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Love this next story. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's just a good story to go back to. If you're struggling with faith, go back and see the way in which God said, are you ready to take over an entire city? Here's how we're gonna do it. Find your best musicians. Take out your flutes. Let's go for a walk. It's amazing. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I just want to point out from this text, over the last nine verses, the writer has praised the faith of a murderer who's been on the backside of the desert for 70 years, believing that he had messed up so badly that God couldn't use him. And when God does come to him, he refuses God multiple times, coming up with a litany of excuses Not to mention Rahab, who, the writer uses kind words, was a prostitute. She was a call girl for crying out loud. She was a whore. And in the scriptures, she's in the lineage of Jesus by faith. There are some of the characteristics of the superheroes of the faith that should encourage us. Men and women like you and me who are far from perfect but trusted God. They trusted God in the midst of their imperfection to do what seemed impossible. Now, at this this point, the writer of Hebrews in verse 32, like most preachers, he he realizes that he's gone a little bit over time. He's running short. And so he he begins to make it brief. Look, Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, or made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Once again, these men and women, if you look at their character, they had many faults. They were murderers. They were poor fathers. They were adulterers. And the list goes on and on. And as you look at the list, some were rich, some were poor. Some were working class. Some were from families that were prestigious. All types of people. But they all trusted God and saw God do amazing things. David, the little shepherd boy who kills a giant with a sling and a stone. Gideon, who defeats an army of 135,000 with 300 men. With merely, yes, they had their swords, but mainly they used torches and clay pots. Imagine Daniel, who refused to stop praying. And God shut the mouths of lions so that he wasn't eaten. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who weren't consumed in the fire. It's so encouraging to be reminded of the way that God uses the faithfulness of his servants in order to bring about, don't miss this, phenomenal stories of at times success, victory, and overcoming staggering obstacles. Literally, the impossible being made possible because of faith. Now, earlier I talked about two ditches on either side of the path of biblical faith. I describe them as an idolized faith and an abandoned faith. And it's important that we pay attention to the message from the writer of Hebrews because he's reminding a people who were struggling. They were struggling because of oppression. They were persecuted. They were in danger for their very lives. And he's reminding them that true biblical faith matters. That we're to be a people who are hopeful. That that God has come through in the past and that we should live with a heightened sense of expectation, trusting in God, putting our hope in him to do the impossible in the middle of our discontentment, to do the impossible in the midst of our unbelief. Now, I want to try to give some some clarity as, as we kind of start to wrap up this long section of scripture, I want to try to give some clarity to either side of those ditches so that we can, even today, take some time to ask the Spirit to help us evaluate, where are we on this path of biblical faith? Where do we find ourselves? And another way that one of my friends has described these two ditches is, stick with me for a minute. It sounds a little nerdy, but it makes sense. He says that the two ditches on either side of the path of biblical faith are an under-realized eschatology and an over-realized eschatology. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Eschatology is simply a word that means the study of final things. And so an under-realized eschatology would say, well, yeah, Jesus has come to save us, but I mean, I don't know that he's really that powerful right now. I mean, he was powerful on the cross and in the resurrection, but his power is kind of, we don't really see it present. And over-realized eschatology would, would do the opposite. So let me see if I can kind of draw this out for us. Some of us can have what I called earlier an abandoned faith or what I want to call an under-realized eschatology. 
when we have the perspective that all these miracles and acts of God were done in the past in order to help us believe in Jesus so that we can now just kind of lope along toward the finish line. See, many of us spend all of our lives looking back at the Bible as if it's a a history book of God's power and faithfulness on display, but we view our own lives as if God's only plan is to save us and save our kids and give us some nice things and then bring us into heaven. That's about all the perspective that we have on God's saving faith and power sometimes. All the while, God has great acts of faith that he has planned out for each of us to take part in. And so an under-realized eschatology or what would be an abandoned faith or a detached faith, that ditch, ultimately it's the result of a lack of trust in God. And the gospel invites each of us into a journey of greater trust. The gospel invites us, each of us, into a journey of greater trust. Our faith journey begins in the same way that our physical journey begins, learning to trust, finding security. But instead of finding security in a mom or in a dad or a family, we find security in God. And remember, Jesus' words, all throughout the book of Mark, we see Jesus' words, let the little children come to me. Why was Jesus in a culture that abandoned children that overlooked children, in which children had no rights, why did Jesus place, particularly in an awkward way, special emphasis on children? Because he was trying to teach us something about what it means to have faith, to trust. What did he say? Unless you come to me like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. We must be born again. We must learn to trust. Now look at verses 35 through 40 with me as we finish this. Verses 35 through 40. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I'm gonna read this slow because this is the side that we don't hear back. We don't hear this message as often as we should in the church. That's why we struggle with having a biblical faith. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. We should read some of the stories of those Puritans and even before the Puritans, some of those of the first century who were willing to be tied up, who were tortured, they were scalped, their eyes were plucked out while they were alive, their tongues were pulled out. You recall seven different brothers who, one after another, watched their siblings go through torture while being stretched over the wheel of a catapult, all growing stronger in their faith, declaring that their brothers who had gone before them were now in glory and that the suffering that they had experienced was worth it. We should read some of those stories. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, 
of whom the world was not worthy. Do you remember last week, Jerry taught that we're seeking a better country. We're aliens in this land of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That's probably the main point in this whole list of verses. If you want to underline something, underline verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We can easily have, as we look at this set of verses, and we see what biblical faith looks like. If we don't read these verses, we can easily have what I want to describe as an over-realized eschatology in which we idolize faith. In this passage, the writer shares powerful passages, yes, of deliverance, but he ends by reminding the people that God delivers some from troubles. He delivers some from troubles, but others he delivers in their troubles. God has not promised us a life without suffering. In fact, Jesus has expressed the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, my sons and daughters. I have overcome the world. One of the emphasis in this chapter is the point made in verse 39. These, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. We see that. uh, We've already seen it in verse 13. Last week, if you look back at verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We see that the Christian faith looks for promises that will not ultimately be fulfilled until heaven. This is because the promises of God are beyond what can be received in our mortal existence. Think about 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Just let me read it to you. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. My guess is that nine times out of 10, when we read that verse, we're like, okay, God, might be that lottery ticket then. Let's go ahead and scratch it off. See what We're thinking in this physical world, we have no idea how much God wants to bless us. And, and I don't, I think that's more like a tenth of the time. Yeah, sometimes God does choose to bless us in ways that are just extravagant, that make no sense. But I think that nine, time, nine tenths of the time, we have no eye to see, nor ear to hear, nor heart to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And what he's prepared for those who love him is what we will receive in glory. And we find ourselves in trouble when our expectations for glory and life in eternity with God get pulled into this mortal, sinful existence. I think one of the best examples of that, and you guys are going to think I'm picking on him, and I'm not picking on Joel Olstein. I just want to use him as an example because he's one of the best examples. It, he wrote a book in 2001 called, um, it's not a biblical book. He claims it's a biblical, biblical book. It's simply a self-help book. There's nothing really biblical about it other than the fact that he extracted some stories in, in, from the Bible and placed them out of context within his book. But it's the best example I know of an over-realized eschatology or an idolized eschatology. 
in which we think that God is just simply here to dole out gifts to us. This is a review that was written of his book. It was Benjamin Franklin, not Jesus, who said, God helps those who help themselves. That's Osteen's message too. Only it's more like God helps those who think well of themselves. Imagine yourself to be a winner and someday you will be a winner. Visualize yourself in a big house or a Lexus and one day you will find yourself with both. That's a quote from the book. As Osteen puts it, God wants to give you your own house. God has a big dream for your life. The key to realizing that big dream is to follow Osteen's seven steps to living up to your full potential. It's nothing more than self-help. He mentions Jesus' name three times in the book. One in an example. And um, so here's his seven steps. The first is enlarge your vision. Believe that God will make you successful. In this life, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Believe that God will make you successful. He goes on to say, expect other people to do things for you. And this is a quote from the book. I've come to expect to be treated differently. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is I'm a child of the most high God. My father created the whole universe. He's crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. Go to work with that kind of attitude and see what the talk is around the water cooler about you later. He goes on, another principle he has is develop a healthy self-image. God sees you as strong and courageous, so stop thinking of yourself as a loser with a bad job, a small apartment, and a lemon of a car. Start believing that you can become what God says you can become. He goes on, he talks about Abraham and Sarah as an example. He says, the key to the promise coming to pass was that Sarah had to conceive it in her heart before she was able to conceive it in her physical body. You gotta believe it before you can conceive it. Guys, here's the problem. And I I won't go on to read Osteen's um, stuff. The writer of this review simply ends in this way. He says, if that is what is passing for Christianity today. And his book sold 8 million copies last time I checked. If that's what's passing for Christianity today, then the need for true gospel preachers is more more than severe. Someone needs to tell these people, even if they are not inclined to hear, even if it's over the heads of their own pastors, that the gospel is not about collaborating with God to make yourself successful. It's not about getting more stuff and being more prosperous. It's about God forgiving people for their sin through the death of his son, bringing them to life from the spiritual dead and conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, whether Joel Olstein preaches these truths in his church of 30,000, I have no idea, but he certainly has not written about them in his book. But I don't just pick on Joel because we all have an over-realized eschatology in which we, we tend to distrust God. We become so disappointed in Him. His timing's always wrong. And it often leads us to a place of detachment. It leads us to a place in which we're no longer willing to believe that God desires to meet us in the midst of our discontentment and to grow our faith to move us along that beautiful journey of faith in which at one point in time, what we have ruined in this world and brought sin and now death, God has redeemed in our faith in that last and beautiful 
beautiful step of passing from this life into the life ever after will become the greatest step of faith that we take. Which our faith becomes like, what a beautiful journey that God has us on. One way that we can grow in our faith comes by uh, practicing and, and entering into what uh, theologians over the years have called the passive disciplines. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're, say, man, I really find myself on, on either side of this path of biblical faith. I, I find myself detached at times. I find myself um, over-realized and expecting more of God than what he's promised for this world. The place to move is to grow in your trust for God. And one of the easiest ways that you can do that is by practicing the passive disciplines. What I mean by the passive disciplines, solitude, being alone. By the way, that involves leaving your phone somewhere other than with you. Silence. A very little silence in our world. Contemplative reading. You might be reading through a Bible plan, and that, that's probably a good thing if you're a new Christian, if you've never read through the Bible before. But those of you who have been followers of Jesus for years and years and years, you should begin to practice contemplative reading, smaller passages of Scripture. Read them over and over again. You, you, might, you might read a single chapter for a week or even a month, just over and over again, dwelling on what is Jesus saying, contemplative reading, prayer. In these more passive dip disciplines, we are intentionally relinquishing our souls to God. We can't prove ourselves. See, in contemplative reading, you can't brag about how you're staying on your timeline for the year. I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. I've been reading my five chapters a day. You can't brag about it. You say things like, I've been reading through Mark chapter 9 for the last month, and I still don't know what Jesus really meant by let the little children come to me. Do you see that? You force yourself to a place. It puts us into a more reflective posture. And at that primitive level, we can generate trust not on our own. We have to receive trust from God like an infant receives trust from their mother. Think about these. I want to practice one of them in just a moment as we end. I just think about how little solitude we have in our lives. How little silence we have in our lives. Uh, I visited my, my brother and sister-in-law, and they have younger children than we do. Young children, they're five and three, and they've got another little girl on the way. He's older than me. And um, visited them in Atlanta last weekend when I wasn't here. And I, and I visited their mega church, and um, th there's a lot of great things that God has used their, their church in nationally and internationally. But we rushed to get there. We parked in a parking deck. I don't know if you guys know Atlanta, but Atlanta's crazy. I mean, Atlanta's like the New York City of the South, you know? And, and we parked in this huge parking deck, and there's literally like lines of people going in like, like they're having a sale at JCPenney, you know? It's like, is it Black Friday? Like, what's going on? Is it, you know? And everybody, like, so they're running late with the kids. They come in like halfway through the first song, and we only sang two songs because they had a baptism that day. So we only sang two songs the whole time we're there. You know, 40-minute message, it's really good. The pastor preaches, he's well-known. If I said his name, I'm not going to, you'd recognize him. Um, and, 
And he's known for when he says, and this is nothing about the church. It's more about the experience and just me reflecting on our lives. When he drops amen at that church, they've been doing this for a couple decades. When he says amen, everybody knows the service is over. At like all nine of their other uh, campuses where he's videoed live, when he says amen, I, I guess I was a little slow opening my eyes or something. I mean, it was a good service. I was kind of reflecting on what he said. And as I started to stand up, I was like, what happened? Did somebody have a gun in here? I mean, it was like, they were gone. I was like, man, he dropped it like it was hot. I mean, it was like an hour service. Amen. We're gone. Go get the kids. Let's get at it again. And nothing about the church. Please don't hear me talking about the church. What I'm talking about is the way we live our lives. We just move on to the next thing. We're so busy. We're so hurried. So little time to even reflect on our own stories of faith. And what God has done. And how gracious he's been. And what's so amazing about this chapter, if you read verse 40, you have to read it very carefully, but it seems to say that God's not done yet. It seems to say that the faith of those who have gone before us is still connected to the faith of what God is calling us to do today, that their faith is not complete without us running the race and finishing well. I want to ask you to reflect. I'm going to ask the band, if they would, to come up. And uh, by the way, we're going to do something new this week. We're going to try something. I've asked two families. Um, Jeff and Marcy are going to come up as well. And Robert and Samantha are going to come up. And they're going to serve us as we come forward for communion. So one will have the bread and one will have the juice. And they will explain to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And uh, hopefully you will have an opportunity to, at some point to serve in that same way. We're going to let missional communities rotate and uh, appoint someone who will serve us each week. I think that'll be meaningful and helpful. But as they come forward, you guys can come on forward. As they come forward, I want to ask you to bow your heads if you would. And as you bow your heads, just reflect on your lives. And as, as you prepare your hearts to come and celebrate all those who are followers of Jesus, who have placed their trust in him and who believe that it's God who has raised Jesus from the dead. You're all welcome to come and participate in communion. But as we come to this table, just with your heads bowed for a moment, be reminded that the Lord's Supper is the place where Jesus has shown his greatest love for us. His greatest love for us. And as we come here, being reminded of the trust that we have in God because of Jesus, I just want you to take a moment to evaluate in your life. Reflect on the way in which you have seen evidence of God's grace in your life this past week. Just take a few moments and reflect on that. How's God grown your faith this last week? Just by using evidence of his grace. Now, as you reflect on that, rewind the tape a little further and look back at this last year. And just ask God to remind you of how he's been faithful to you in this last year. Some, some 
moments that are evidence of his grace. Now, as you look back over your life, how you came to know him, the family you came from, just reflect for a moment on all that God has done in saving you, in providing for you, in giving you good, good gifts. Father, thank you that as we come today to your table, God, that you've provided this physical reminder for us that you can be trusted, that you have loved us so much that you've given, just as Abraham was willing to do, but as Jesus did perfectly, the perfect sacrifice, you've given us your only son, and that you've loved us with an everlasting love. Father, would you help us to have a biblical faith, a faith that doesn't grow weary in well-doing, a faith that is resilient? God, would you help us in our faith to be more and more comfortable with not having all the answers? But God, knowing that the answer is in Jesus... Jesus, thank you that as we look at this hall of faith, as we look at these characters of faith, these men and women, God, even though their faith and what they saw was only dim, God, they followed with great faith. God, we who are on the other side of the cross in the resurrection, may we be a men and women who follow with even greater faith because of all that you have shown us and all that you have given us in all the ways that you have loved us. God, grow our faith. Remind us of your love. Enable us through your spirit to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And Jesus' church says, amen.